Thanks, Mark, for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Sammy. Thanks for thanks for having me. I, I appreciate the support. We're mm-hmm. excited. Yo, welcome to my summer lair. I'm your host, Sammy. Currently in detention at Ridgemont High for 48 hours. Yunnan. And welcome Mark Altman to the program. You may know him from his work on hit TV shows like Castle and the Librarians, or perhaps you've read some of his comic book adaptations for Star Trek, or those oral history books on Battlestar Galactica and Buffy. He's an accomplished writer, producer, and deep diver of all things geeky. His latest project as a writer and TV producer is Greatest Geek Year Ever, 1982, which you can stream on the CW app. At the Movies 1982 is a year of cosmic wonders and electric dreams. E.T., the extraterrestrial, Blade Runner, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Poltergeist, Tron, Conan the Barbarian, The Thing, Rocky III, so much more. Eddie Murphy's film debut in 48 hours. That list is not even exhaustive. 1982 was magic. So to navigate all of that awesome is the CW's Greatest Geek Year Ever, 1982, which uncovers the secrets, stories, and epic moments that shaped our geeky lives. Probably still shape our geeky lives. This isn't using nostalgia as a time machine. Greatest Geek Year Ever is a recognition of how our geek history still impacts our present and the unique, charmingly demented individuals we've all grown up to become. (laughs) As you'll hear, what's super fun about Mark's work is that he's not afraid to get his hands all nerdy. He's like a pop culture archaeologist, digging up hidden gems and bringing them back to life for a whole new generation of fans. This My Summer Layer conversation is sparked by his experiences co-creating Greatest Geek Year Ever, as well as some delightful 80s-related tangents, including one about Knight Rider. Oh, yo, you can hear the Knight Rider theme song in your head right now, can't you? If you're passionate about all things 80s and beyond, if you're a fan of pop culture and the impact it has on our present era, or if you just enjoy two geeks getting all geeky in public, talking about the Greatest Geek Year Ever, This episode is dedicated to you. This time-traveling podcast extravaganza begins with my 1982 shameful confession. Sound, the final frontier. My Summer Lair is an enterprise, a pop culture voyage with a continuing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new creators and celebrate established producers, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now here is your host, Sammy Yunan. If you're ready to go, uh, we'll just kind of jump in and talk about all the fun that was 1982. Yeah, whenever, whenever, whenever you're you're good to go, I'm uh, I'm, I'm I'm ready. Sure. Actually, I I was debating if I should open with a confession because I was watching your docu series, and I've never seen Megaforce. Is it too late? <laughs> <laughs> Is it too late to go back and watch it? Have I missed well, the moment? You know. Oh, Sammy, it's never too late. They, what did they say at 30 Rock? It's never too late for now. Mm-hmm. It's never too late for Megaforce. Okay. Because the thing is, it never gets better. It's always, <laughs> nice. it, I mean, it, it, it truly is in that rarefied air of Plan 9 from Outer Space and the Apple mm-hmm. and, you know, all these, these 
classic, terrible movies that are somehow wildly enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I don't mind criticizing it because no one is funnier and more self-deprecating about it than Barry Boswick. Yeah, he was great in your documentary. I mean, he's so... <laughs> it really is such an artifact of the the age. And it is kind of instructional because, you know, that was a movie that was kind of made, you know, obviously um, the director uh, was a famous stuntman, uh, but also it was sort of made at the behest of a toy company. You know, they created Mattel did the, um, the toys and the, um, and the costumes and, mm-hmm. you know, all before IP mania, this was the equivalent of the kinds of movies. And this is what you get when there's no one with a real vision. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, you could say Al Ruddy, the producer of The Godfather, it wrote, co-wrote and produced it, but this is not The Godfather. <laughs> no, it didn't even look close to The Godfather. But I was like, watching and, and, the clips, I was like, man, it, I want to check this out. I never got around to it. I'm kind of fired for that. It, 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 and I have to admit, I'll be honest, I'll make an admission to you mm-hmm. now that I did not see Megaforce back in the 80s. It was many years later. So, you know, I that famous opening weekend when Blade Runner... And the, the thing opened and Megaforce. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did not see Megaforce then. I did not see it when it came out on uh, uh, VHS. Mm-hmm. I did not have the video game that Brian Cranston did the commercial for as a young boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, so it was only many years later that I discovered the joys of Megaforce. And I was so glad to be able to include in the movie because, again, you know, Boswick is so fantastic in the series talking about Megaforce. Yeah. And it, it kind of is sort of like, you know, after you have your, your steak and your serious appetizer and it's the dessert, <laughs> we, you know, you got your, uh, your appetizer, which is the thing. And then you get the sweet dessert, which is Megaforce. So I, I particularly love that episode where we deal with the three of them. This is a bit of a tangent. It's not related per se to your docuseries, but what was the deal with all the cars back in the 80s? Like the General Lee, the DeLorean, the A-Team Van, Knight Rider, Megaforce. What was the <laughs> fascination with like well, souped up that's vehicles? That's a good question. I mean, the General Lee, you know, dates back to the 70s. But, you know, it's a good question because some of these are such iconic cars. I mean, like Knight Rider... Uh, we originally wanted to include all the TV series 82 also. Mm-hmm. And we just realized we, we couldn't, or this would have been a 40 part series. Right. Yeah. And um, Knight Rider was one of the shows that debuted in 1982. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's funny because I have, you know, very good friends that actually have replicas of that car who have the Knight Rider, who have the William Daniels answers uh, voice in, in the car. And, you know, God knows what they spent for it. You know? <laughs> One of my friends is an Emmy winner. And then, yeah. you know, I don't know if I won an Emmy, if I would go and celebrate by buying myself a Knight Rider car, <laughs> but apparently he did. And uh, you're you right. Fight I crime mean, that I way, think though. also part of it. Yeah, totally. I also think it's the way we collected toys because I think now people collect action figures and they primarily play, you know, photorealistic video games back then, you know, we had Corgis and we had Matchbox and, so, like, you would play with the the A Team van, or you would play with the Knight Rider car, or you would mm-hmm. play with a lot of these, you know, cl- the James Bond vehicles. You know, all through uh, um, the obviously seventies and eighties and sixties, there were amazing James Bond cars, starting with the Aston Martin, of course. But you know, in the seventies, you had the submarine car and Spy Love Me, and in the eighties, you had the new version of the Aston Martin, Living Daylights, and 
Um, you know, 83 was the Battle of the Bonds. Octopus, he had that, you know, the, when uh, VJ Armitrush says, oh, there's a company car and he has the little car and it suddenly starts going in India and starts yeah. to go wildly, <laughs> you know, speed through the streets. Mm-hmm. Of uh, So it, it's, um, I, I think that's part of it. But I also think they were just really cool and they usually did cool things. I, you know, again, it's not the 80s, but like the submarine car in Spy Love Me. Mm-hmm. I mean, how cool is it that a car that go, can go underwater and work like a submarine and then come back on dry land? I mean, it's remarkable. It's super fun. Yeah. And I, I think that's why we were, uh, you know, obsessed by cars, you know. Mm-hmm. And then Christine, obviously. It's funny because that was, um, well, you know, Carpenter had wanted to do after the thing, Christine and Firestarter. At Universal, but because the thing was such a bomb, it ended up, you know, not happening there. I mean, he ended up having to go to another studio because after the thing, it sort of killed his chances. And I mean, that was the thing that was, um, you know, so uh, mortifying him. He, at the time, he was married to Adrian Barbeau. He comes back from a vacation, you know, a week or two before the thing opens and he sees E.T. on the cover of Rolling Stone, <laughs> you know, friendly alien. And he, yeah. he realizes, oh, my God, the thing's going to bomb. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, it was mortifying to him. It was. And he was right, obviously, that we love the thing now and it's a brilliant movie, but it made 12 cents at the box office back in 82. Which is funny, too, because another one that's in the docuseries is Blade Runner, and that struggled to find an audience as well. It's weird that these beloved uh, movies now were like, audiences like, I don't know what to do with this. This is weird. There's an old expression about, you know, films and TV being ahead of their time. And that kind of is the thing that directors or studios uses an excuse to explain why something doesn't work right you know oh uh uh you know that movie didn't uh, you know it didn't work because it was ahead of its time but blade runner truly was ahead of its time mm-hmm. and it's so interesting because even now and i think we deal with this in the in the in the series there's still a debate going on you know was the original theatrical version with the harrison ford narration you know um good or is the definitive version the final version? Uh, we're without the narration, which was re, you know re-edited many years later and re-released. And you you can hear you know among even the filmmakers and the actors and obviously fans, uh, n- there's no consensus. Mm-hmm. I mean, Michael Dealey, the producer, says there's a consensus. That, you know, because Ridley says the final version where Harrison is a replicant and there's no narr- is a definitive version. But I, I think what's what we made very clear is there is no consensus. There's a very strong difference of opinion among people about what is the definitive version or the best version of Blade Runner. But clearly that was a movie that was ahead of its time, like 2001, because it it continues to, there's probably no movie that is more influential than maybe Alien, you know, that Blade Runner continues to influence the state of science fiction, you know, 40 plus years later. Yeah, this is one of the things watching your docuseries that uh, I kind of missed from like the way we have now with netflix and everything is like the element of surprise because a lot of this ip Mm. was brand new so i can get sort of why the audience may not know what a blade runner is and i when i watched like the thing i didn't know what a john carpenter was at that point right so and at least with with blade runner i knew harrison ford was the dude from star wars so i had some reference but for the most part it's all like an element of surprise you don't really know what any of these movies are or they're going to be yeah. No, that's a great point. I mean, you know, the thing is, what was wonderful about that era and about the movie, maybe we saw an ad in the newspaper, you know, maybe, you know, Star Trek 2, you knew it was a sequel to Star Trek 1, but you didn't really know 
much mm-hmm. and there was a magic to that you know there were no spoilers you know there were you you rarely in most cases if you hadn't seen the trailer in a theater you hadn't seen the trailer because mm-hmm. there's no internet there's no um uh, no way to see this stuff so you go kind of in unspoiled and that made it you know rather magical you know and it made and it was hard to see a movie you couldn't reserve seats so you'd wait online, and if it was a popular movie, often maybe you couldn't get into the two o'clock show. So you've been waiting around two hours for the next show. And what do you have to do? You talk to the people who are standing in line with you about what you've seen recently, what you're seeing, and so there was a much more profound sense of discussion about movies and their part. They weren't as disposable. Nobody called movies content back in '82. Yeah, you know, it's the, in the best cases they were art, but if not, they were entertainment. Mm-hmm. You know, but they weren't content. But it's also community because there there is a very subtle like love letter, I guess, to to going to the cinema that runs through greatest geek year ever. Um, and I know you worked in a video rental store for a bit, too. Right. Which is where we discovered some of these <laughs> movies because we weren't old enough to get into them or couldn't like get to them or whatever. Wow. But- you did your homework, Sammy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you did your homework. That is that is true. I worked at a. Leo's video bin in Brooklyn, New York, when I was in high school. So probably in 82, I was already working in a video store. And that was that was such a novel uh, uh, job that will never really exist again. And um, and that was where you got that was a big part of, again, the pre-internet discussion because people come to the store and they say, oh, do you have, uh, you know, do you have the road warrior in? And mm-hmm. you'd be like, oh, no, I'm sorry, Ralph, because maybe the guy only ordered two or three copies, the owner, because he didn't realize it was like a great movie. And then they'd say, well, what else is good? And you'd start to, you'd, you'd be like an encyclopedia. And this is no, I, you'd be a walking IMDb and say, well, maybe you want to look at this or maybe, you know, try, try Conan the Barbarian or, you, you know, if you, you like sort of cheesy sword and sorcery, maybe sword and sorcery you might enjoy <laughs> or, yeah. you know, open to trying a horror movie, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 or you know, or if you want to share something to watch with the kids, maybe Dark Crystal, you know, and and uh, it's it was so wonderful because you, you and then you get into conversations uh, with the people who came into the store, and it's funny because even then you'd have the owner saying, "Well, whatever we have twelve copies of, that's what you should push," mm-hmm. and I always push back on that because I could not recommend a, I did not want to recommend a bad movie. Mm-hmm. I remember many years later. You know, we had like, I was working in college at a video store and we had like hundreds of copies of Superman for the quest for peace. Right. And he says, we can't give these away. You got to tell people it's good. So they'll rent it. I'm like, <laughs> I'm not telling people yeah. they trust me. Yeah. Not that Superman for the quest for peace is a good movie. I'm sorry. I won't do it. <laughs> this is an interesting element as well that runs through uh, 1982, which is it kind of developed a lot of taste. Right. Like now we know what kind of is good taste, what is quality. Yes, the thing and Blade Runner bombed. But over time, we've proven like that these are good films. And like like if you're going to become interested in film, this is part of your homework. And so it's interesting how because of all this imagination created taste. Well, look at uh, that's a really good point. And look at the level of film discourse at the time. It was on a much more erudite scale. You had Pauline Kael and Jack Kroll and Vincent Camby and obviously even Siskel and Ebert, you know, on television, who were the nation's film critics for all intents and purposes. Mm-hmm. They, they talked about film with love and understanding and an understanding of the past. And people went into movies not expecting to hate things. Right. So you would find what was good about it. You could see a movie that was inherently flawed and still you know, find what was good about it. Like and, Megaforce. And, you know, like something like Tron. Tron. 
like well like megaforce yeah <laughs> but i mean there, there are a lot of movies that came out you know that that aren't you know perfect and yet you would find the good in them and if you talked about what didn't work you talked about it on a, a much more critical level maybe the writing the cinematography the directing you know rather than just saying that was crap you know because now people are competing to have the most clever especially when you're trying to distill your thoughts down to 140 words or 140 characters mm -hmm. you're trying to find the pithiest and, and pissiest <laughs> most uh crit criticism of a movie right. but back then when you were criticizing something you know it was much more articulate and i think you know that's why you know, even the films which necessarily aren't as good still like resonate for us because, you know, I make the argument in the documentary that it's not necessarily the greatest movie going year at all time, but it is the greatest geek year. But other people like Scott Mance, you know, truly believe it is the greatest year for movies ever. But, you know, that's why you could go to a movie that cost a million dollars like Sword and Sorcerer compared to Conan's $40 million and still really enjoy it. And in many cases, you know, four decades later, still be talking about it. You know, Lee Horsley's, you know, three bladed, you know, sword <laughs> and uh, things like that. And uh, Richard Lynch is the evil villain and, you know, stuff like Beastmaster, you know, which is four million dollars. You know, you still love and you don't say, oh, it looks cheap and cheesy. You just remember that you love it. And, uh, you know, it was so funny at the time because HBO and would reinforce it because it would be on all the time. And everybody would call HBO. Hey, Beastmaster's on station, <laughs> just like later on, they would say TBS, the Beastmaster yeah. station. And, you know, the, the, their biggest movie was Gone with the Wind, followed by, you know, the Beastmaster. And that was a four million dollar movie. Mm -hmm. You know, now most TV is made for more more than four million dollars an episode. Game of Thrones. So it's um, it, yeah, like Game of Thrones. Right? Could you imagine if Game of Thrones looked like the Beastmaster? <laughs> I don't think people would be having it. Yeah, <laughs> I'd watch that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you just used a, a key phrase that like that enjoyment that people got out of these movies because. Almost all the guests that you have in this docu-series, they're laughing and they're smiling and they're reminiscing and like they're having a good time as they talk about the movies from 1982, whether they were in them or whether they went and saw them. And so can you just yeah, give thank us, you for saying that. Like, can you give us like a little brief list of like who's in it? Because they these people are clearly having fun and like it was a good year for them, 1982. Well, th thank you for saying that, because I, I truly believe I think why the TV show works so well and why people seem to 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 love it so much is because of the mix of people who were there people who made the movies and people who love the movies mm -hmm. so you go from you know maybe for blade runner you know a sean young and a joanna cassidy and the, the producer michael dealey and paul salmon who wrote the book to a bunch of you know a professional fans you know because the fans in our our documentary are all professionals who've gone on and been very successful doing other things. So you have somebody like screenwriter Zach Penn, who did Ready Player One, or Mark Guggenheim, who did Legends of Tomorrow, or, or Darren Scott, who produced A Menace to Society, you know, or critics like Ray Drake or, or um, Sean Edwards or Scott Mance. So it, it's such a great mix. Because it's the people that made it who had one perspective and that the people who were affected by it, who love it, you know, or somebody like Felicia Day, um, you know, or uh, um, all these wonderful, wonderful people. So, you know, it's great. Like I look at uh, in the second week we deal with Star Trek, Two. It's such a great combination because you got Bill Shatner and Nick Meyer. But then you have all these people who were impacted by the movie, you know, talking about what it meant to them and why it was such a special experience. So I, I love that combination because a lot of times 
in these kinds of, because we really truly like the Ewoks celebrate the love. This is all <laughs> about a passion for the movie going experience for an era of movies that will never come again. And it, it really is a celebration. And particularly, you know, we're in the middle of summer, 2023 mm -hmm. and uh, to look back, you know, 40 years earlier and, and look at this amazing group of films and, you know, they all spoke to different people because we haven't even touched on like the horror films. There's a whole generation that, you know, came, you know, of age watching those horror movies, whether it be on VHS or home video or, um, you know, in the movies. And, you know, it's such a great year uh, because in the same way that, you know, you look now at a lot of the movies that are being made by people who grew up loving you know, comic books or the movies of the eighties back then you had these filmmakers who grew up loving the movies of the fifties. So, or the comic books of the fifties. So you have Paul Schrader doing cat people, right. you know, or John Carpenter doing the thing, mm -hmm. or, you know, in George Romero's case, it's Stephen King doing creep show. Mm -hmm. You know, this generation of filmmakers that grew up on movies in the fifties paying homage to what they love mm -hmm. in the same way that filmmakers today are paying homage to the comic books and uh, movies uh, and TV that they grew up on. Because even something like creep show was based on the EC comic books right. of, um, you know, the fifties that, you know, George Romero and uh, Stephen King love so much. Yeah. And one of the things that's interesting too, is the credits for the end of the first episode. It says, in memory of Frederick S. Clark. Who was Frederick S. Clark, for people that don't know? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you noticed that because, you know, obviously, you know, not a lot of people watch the credits. But Fred Clark was the editor and publisher of Cinefantastic magazine. And Cinefantastic was like the New Yorker of sci-fi magazines. Mm -hmm. You know, it started in the 70s. And, you know, Starlog was probably, you know, the more populist one, but the more, um, the more deeper dive, the, the, the one that took the genre seriously was Cinefantastic. And it covered all these movies and it covered it, them all in a serious way and said that lately, uh, in his mid fifties, uh, about 20 years ago, but the legacy of Cinefantastic, which influenced so many of us, uh, 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 you know, continues to live on. And that's why we felt it was, worth dedicating this in the memory of uh, Fred Clark, who was uh, such a, a special guy, you know, may not be a household word the way Stan Lee is, or, um, you know, Forrest Ackerman, you know, mm -hmm. to geeks, but uh, he is, he's, he belongs on the Mount Rushmore of uh, science, you know, science fiction magazine, journalistic legends. Yeah. This idea of like nerding out or geeking out. Um, I, I want to like pick up on this one thread because in the greatest geek year ever, 1982, there's an interesting contradiction where some of these movies were blockbusters, literal blockbusters. People were lining up around the block to kind of get into them. But at the same time, nerds or geeks were also social outcasts. So it's an interesting con contradiction because it's like everyone's watching them, everyone's digging them. But at the same time, people are having a hard time fitting in, if that makes sense. I think it's very interesting because you're absolutely right. These were huge blockbusters but you know i i i think that a, te a testament to their entertainment but why it resonated for so much more with geek culture and and we're geeks geek geeks it was not now everyone's a geek right right in in 2023 thanks you to know marvel. people use computers and cell phones and thanks to marvel exactly mm -hmm. and uh you know everyone considers themselves a geek back then it was a a nerdy subculture it mm -hmm. wasn't necessarily cool to be a geek. So I think when geeks found each other, 
these movies were kind of like oasis that brought the geeks together. And again, part of that was standing online. And then, you know, maybe the people you'd meet, you say, hey, let's go get a D&D campaign together or let's go do this. And that's how you'd meet people. It's kind of the equivalent of the Internet now, meeting people, you know, uh, um, online. But th- there you were literally literally meeting people on a line. And uh, and that's how you would sometimes, you know, make friends or, or find like minded people, mm-hmm. you know, or find your tribe, so to speak. And these movies were sort of the magnet that brought these like-minded individuals together. Because chances are, if you met somebody who was waiting two hours online for Star Trek II, they probably liked Star Trek, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> you know, or somebody who was waiting online two hours for Conan the Barbarian. Chances are maybe they liked Robert E. Howard or Frank Frazetta, you know, that you had something in common with them, you know, and the same thing with, uh, you know, with the horror films and stuff. So it's... Um, it, it, it's really interesting. And then you you do have these incredible mainstream movies that come out that year also that are remarkable. You know, 48 Hours, Tootsie, uh, which, you know, was one of the top movies of the year. I mean, one of the most successful movies of the year, we don't really talk about that much in the documentary. It's Officer and Gentleman. That's right, yeah. But that is also part of this phenomena that's going on, which is suddenly the emergence of MTV in 83 becomes, I mean, in, sorry, in 81 becomes really significant in terms of marketing in 82 because all of a sudden a hit song on MTV can open a movie. So often gentlemen, as, as great as that movie is, that movie opens because of the success of the Joe Cocker, Jennifer Warren song, which right. you couldn't avoid. Rocky three becomes a phenomena, not because it's the third Rocky movie, but because of eye, of the tiger, which is everywhere. You can't go anywhere without hearing eye, of the tiger by survivor. And it's a very different kind of Rocky movie. Right. The first two Rockies were kind of a smaller, intimate movie, whereas this one is more of a kind of leaning towards yeah. a blockbuster kind of mentality. Yeah, I, I absolutely. I love in the documentary when David Goodman points out that after these two serious, one of them an Oscar award winning movie, suddenly this is the equivalent of a superhero movie. You know, because basically uh, Rocky teams up with his old nemesis. And of course, it has this huge song, Eye of the Tiger, mm-hmm. which we all listen to, you know, incessantly and never got bored of, unlike some other <laughs> songs. And uh, it was it was pretty remarkable. And I love that insight into Rocky three because people forget Rocky three was a phenomenon in a way that Rocky one and Rocky two weren't. Those are great, great movies. But Rocky Three was like this incredible phenomena. And it's suddenly this boxing movie, you know, it wasn't Raging Bull, you know, it was, it appealed to kids. It was, you know, something that everyone wanted to see. And, you know, what a year for Sly. I mean, to have Rocky Three and First Blood come out. Yeah. I mean, Rambo was born that year, became Act First Blood, is a really good film mm-hmm. directed by Todd Co- Ted Kotcheff. And Sly is great in it. Mm-hmm. And you have so many of these movies where you had actors who were doing multiple movies that year. I mean, you had Meryl Streep in Sophie's Choice and Still the Night. Jessica Lange, who was in um, Tootsie and Francis. And of course, uh, you know, you had Clint Eastwood in Firefox, Honky yes. Tonk Man. All right. You know, so, so, so many of these films, you know, people would be in not one, but two significant movies that year. Um, and it's really... Um, 
And of course, Shatner, most of all, in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and, and Airplane II, the sequel. Which was so magic. it's a great year for Bill, yeah. <laughs> which is magic. <laughs> <laughs> I like those airplane movies. So just to wrap up now, the greatest geek year ever, 1982, will be on the CW. Yeah. As the series rolls around, it's a docuseries, it's a four-part docuseries, as each episode airs every Saturday. Are you expecting certain 80s movies to kind of suddenly start showing up on like the streaming like charts and stuff like this? Like all of a sudden there's like a hunger now for a poltergeist or the, the well, thing? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I I couldn't imagine a better home for this uh, 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 Grace Geek Year Ever 1982, the CW. But CW has traditionally been a home for geek entertainment, you know, with the Arrowverse mm-hmm. and uh, with all the, um, you know, amazing sci-fi and fantasy shows that they've done in, you know, the the past you know decades so it's such a great fit and it's such a great schedule to have this on saturday nights in july because Mm -hmm. if it brings back the feeling of being a kid going to the movies you know so i you know my advice is to make some microwave popcorn go get your you know good and plenties plop yourself down in front of the tv every saturday starting july 8th and uh watch these because it's going to bring back so many memories and i think you're going to learn a few cool things about you know these movies you love and you might even learn about some movies you never knew about like megaforce right megaforce, you, yeah. you're ready to go see megaforce I, now i gotta so, we gotta wrap this up so i can watch megaforce that's right and if people miss it and if people aren't geeks and they're not home on a saturday night they can always watch it on the app or the premiere is going to be repeated on Tuesday the 11th. So plenty of opportunities to watch it and relive those memories that we, and, and, and for, I think for kids, it's going to be really eye opening. This is going to be like an alien world for them. Mm-hmm. That This is really the way people watch movies. This is really the way people celebrated movies. Oh my God. All those movies came out in 1982. How is that possible? Right. That's why I made it with Scott and Roger. And I'm so proud of it. And so excited that, you know, I get to share it with the world in July. It's tons of fun. So it's the greatest geek year ever, 1982. Thank you so much, yeah. Mark, for like hanging out and like geeking out with me. Because uh, no, was, my pleasure, Sammy. That was an just awesome remember year. one thing. Mm-hmm. Just remember one thing before you go. What's that? The good guys always win, even in the 80s. There we go. See, this is <laughs> a little lesson for the kids. A little takeaway for the kids. You're an inspiration. You and Megaforce. So thank you. Well, so take much. care and thanks. Thanks for the time. I appreciate it. Yo, that was Mark Altman geeking out over Greatest Geek Year Ever, 1982 on The CW. And I'm Sam Yunin, host of My Summer Lair. Blessed are the geek, for they shall inherit the earth. The prophecy has come true since Star Wars opened in 1977. As you heard Mark, he makes the case 1982 was just a great geek year, not necessarily the greatest year in cinema. And you know... I don't know. I believe you can make the case for greatest year in cinema. Now, I didn't go to the cinema for most of the 1982 movies. I was still little Sammy. Going to the movies was an experience, something I did only a couple of times a year. Watching this docuseries, I don't know how these classic movies came into my life. I don't know why or how I watched the thing, but I'm glad I did. Even as a kid... The thing made way more sense and appealed to my flourishing sci-fi taste than E.T. Poltergeist. Poltergeist was super creepy 
and scary as a kid. The the clown, the tree, the muddy swimming pool. Damn. Until you get older and realize for a horror movie, nobody died. Seriously? There's no body count for a horror movie? That was made and broadcast in the era of the slasher? It wasn't until I got to high school that I found other people who watched Blade Runner and were willing to debate Harrison Ford's Pinocchio status. Mark briefly talked about working in a video rental store. As always, when we talk about these things, it's not that I'm glorifying the past or have some sort of desire to return to a more cumbersome time. Trust me, (laughs) when it's the dead of winter in January and there is snow falling, Netflix is amazing. I'm thankful and I'm grateful. I'm not putting on pants and trudging to the video store. That being said, there is a significant loss we should acknowledge from when we transitioned from VHS rentals and even late night cable TV to streaming. Online, we pine for Blockbuster in a way we don't crave late night cable. Yet late night cables where I discovered a number of classic 1982 movies. When you watch Greatest Geek Year Ever 1982 on the CW, you quickly realize the spectrum is what made the year so special. Our pop culture was so broad because we were just consuming all of the stuff. It was only later that we became selective or snobby and perhaps sophisticated, defending our taste with phrases like guilty pleasure. I like so much that we opened this conversation with Megaforce. That's right, out of all of those 1982 movies, we started with Megaforce. Initially and wonderfully, 1982 gifted us this broad foundation of fantastic images stitched together from flipping through late night TV channels, taking risks at the video store when inevitably we discover a moment that would make us stop and ask, what is happening here? Who are these characters? There was no context for anything. That took a while to develop. Greatest Geek Year Ever 1982 successfully demonstrates back then pop culture was a surprise party and you were the guest of honor. This is a fantastic and fun docuseries from all kinds of recent Star Trek TV shows to the Marvel explosion. 1982 made a significant contribution and is one of the key reasons of how our pop culture got here. My hope is Greatest Geek Year Ever 1982 is successful. The CW is so impressed they green light Greatest Geek Year Ever 1984 as a follow-up. Man, if you think 82 was nuts, 84 was wild. For now, check out the docuseries on The CW, and today, right now, sign up for My Pal Sammy newsletter on Substack. Trends, not takes. With the My Pal Sammy newsletter, you'll savor insights into the cutting-edge world of popular culture. Discover new perspectives via the My Summer Layer podcast. Relish thought-provoking essays and fancy, remarkable photos. All of it will deepen your pop culture passions and help you impress your friends, and even convert strangers into pals with your knowledge. MySummerLayer.com slash subscribe. MySummerLayer.com slash subscribe. Trust me, unlike your hair choices during picture day, back at school in 1982, I promise you won't regret it. Thank you for listening to me in a Netflix world. 1982, yo.